Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. Hey, it sounds like you have the sniffles a little bit. I, I'm just getting over it, basically. Uh, good, because I'm just getting under it? I don't know. <laughs> so we're both going to be in great voice tonight, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, there's some there's some stuff going around, uh, just in time for the holidays, too. Yeah, who doesn't who doesn't love to be sick at Christmas? Yeah, it's kind of traditional. Uh, and then, you know, you go have a big family dinner and you get everyone else sick and it's a way yeah. of life. I'm, I'm wondering if you caught whatever um, bacterial colony has infested you. I, I wonder if you found that at uh, I believe you went to a convention uh, this weekend. I did. Um, which are known for being hygienic places to go and not get sick. Yeah, uh, I will say that I was sick since before I was I caught my sickness uh, before Thanksgiving. So it just took a little bit to, you know, they linger at the end a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. However, it did cross my mind this weekend uh, as I attended PAX Unplugged, which for those unfamiliar, PAX is Penny Arcade Expo, which is a big video game expo that took place in Seattle originally. I and think then so. they made a PAX East, which is in Boston. And then they made a PAX Unplugged which is in Philadelphia, uh, and basically it was designed around the idea that, like, they had areas at the PAX conventions for, like, board games and tabletop stuff, but there was enough interest to just do a whole thing around that. Uh Aha. I was wondering what the unplugged was, but that makes sense. Yes. Um, So, conveniently, located in Philadelphia, you know, which is where I live right outside the city, so... Uh, I've been looking at it. This is the third year they've done it. And I've looked at it the past year or two and gone, mm, that sounds pretty cool because I have no interest in packs. I have friends who go, I know people, I'm not into enough video games to mm-hmm. be interested in that. And especially not like the big AAA guys that are be there doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I also yeah. don't really know what you do at a convention for video games, but yeah. And to hang around with a bunch of video game strangers as well doesn't always seem like a great proposition to me yeah um i mean i think if you are the kind of person that you know wants to be able to like meet your favorite indie developer and chat with them and get a picture taken or go you know look at like industry panels and you know i guess it's the closest thing to like a music festival that non-music video game kids have you know just kind of like a chance to go and do some live event that is surrounded by all your stuff you like i mean i it's not really for me but you know i also had the thought that like boy you know a video game convention is probably gonna have a lot of like children and teenagers uh and you know in a very sort of like crowded setting so that's the reason why i was like oh that sounds sounds pretty terrible um However, uh, one thing that, I mean, so, but I decided to go to this, um, you we can thank, uh, we had Corey, also known as Serino, uh, eternal streamer player mm-hmm. on the show a long time ago. He was like, let's just go to this. Cause it's like, it's 70 bucks for three days, you know, effectively 10 till, if you want to stay till midnight, you can, I did not do <laughs> that because I am an adult. Uh, and I, you know, but by the end of that day, I'm like, my brain is mush anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, thinking like tw- effectively 25 or so bucks a day to just like try a bunch of random board games and do much summer. It's like it's a pretty good yeah. deal because they have those like board game cafes that cost like 30 or 40 dollars to go to for like five or six hours. So you're making out pretty good. Uh, but yeah, so we went. Um, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, I actually like knew a lot of people like outside of my immediate friend group who were there because just me and uh, Corey who went most of the time. Um, 
and including I was standing in line. You'll enjoy the story. I was standing in line, you know, the line to get in, which wasn't actually so bad. I was really nervous about the lines and that kind of things. I've heard that can be hell at a convention uh, as this is my first one. And it really wasn't so bad. Like, you know, they had a security line, but it, it moved very quickly and uh, it wasn't so bad. But I'm walking through the line and it has one of those snake lines, you know, like you, mm-hmm. people are sneaking back and forth. And they had, it was actually all very organized. And I just hear someone go, Andrew Coots. And it was uh, our good buddy Talzin. I didn't know he was going to be there. And just like bumped into him. And like, I mean, this I mean, this is a big crowd, like thousands of people for yeah. sure. And you guys just happened to be close enough in line to, to see yeah. each other. Huh. Yeah, it was funny. I so mean, you're a tough ju- guy to miss, but still. Well, I will say this. In that crowd, I don't stand out quite as much as in other <laughs> crowds. I'm, I mean, I'm still tall, but, you know, I will say that. Um, and listen. I'm not the most handsome man in the world. I know that. I look like a nerd. I'm not casting stones. It was just a more of a observation that when I first got there on Friday, I went to like the main expo area, which is where all the you know publishers and retailers and stuff have all their booths set up, and you see all their cool stuff. They're demoing games and whatever else. And I saw a guy. You know, this is like first thing we got there Friday morning, so it just entered. I see this guy who's you know tall. As you have described in the Metal Vest episode, uh, you know, an inside boy, um, you know, probably in his 40s, uh, you know, unfortunate, you know, like acne scarred face, big kind of old timey glasses, uh, long hair, but with the hairline starting probably three quarters of the way back. Yeah. uh, Holding a wizard staff and Uh like really sweaty, like and like with like his arms just like full of games and miniatures and stuff. And I was like, yeah, it's about right. (laughs) You know, but yeah, no, I mean, I I, got to say I had a fucking blast, man. Yeah. Like the energy is really cool because everyone's just there to like do these things. And it's, you know, it's a variety of like there's the magic area and there's the 40K and Warhammer and, you know, miniatures area. There's an area to paint your miniatures and then there's the expo area. And then obviously they have panels and, and, you know, presentations and things. There's like a LARPing area. There's the D and D area, like a little bit of everything. And then they had just tables upon tables of like, you know, just like open gaming area. So it was really impressive to see just like thousands of people all sitting down playing board games. So, so it's not just in the, you know, when I think of an expo or a con, you know, I'm thinking of almost like a trade show environment Mm -hmm. where, you know, everybody's there to kind of pitch their product and um, be seen which it sounds like there was a that was certainly a factor, but also they there was just they just had created a big space for a lot of just like live play for games. Yeah. So a couple of the areas that we spent a lot of time in was, um, you know, and I, I really struggled with like what to go to because it was just like, man, all this stuff is really interesting. And there's plenty of stuff I wasn't interested in. Like there's a whole magic area that's just like people who just want to go and play magic for 36 hours straight or competing, you know, different you know, pay to enter tournaments for all kinds of games. Uh, but, you know, a lot of obviously magic's a huge one. But um, so I wasn't interested in that sort of thing. I almost did a, what's called a mini masters. I'm sure you know what that is, but where you get like a pack and you cycle in 15 lands and you just go and it's free. And but mm. I just it was a, I had a hard time committing to anything because I had like a list of things. I have a very nice app you could sort through and pick out the things you wanted to do. But I had a hard time committing to anything that would be too long just because I didn't want to be tied down or spend too much of the con doing one thing. Uh, looking back, I probably had enough time to be like, you know, I, I can 
sit down and do this for a couple hours and it's okay. Yeah. Well, you know, in your, your first time, you don't know what you're to expect. So it's kind of like now that you've been once, you can you can kind of look in the next one and say like, yeah, next time I go, I'm going to set aside three hours to play X. Yeah. Because you kind of have a sense for what to expect and, you know, what does an hour mean at, at, at something like this? Right. So uh, the areas we like to spend time in most of the time, we there was an area that was just a... Uh, they had a game library, just like tables that are organized alphabetically, of just like a, a jillion board games, just like huh. anything you want. And you could go and check them out and just go sit in a table and play with people. I will make a comment about this in a second, but I'll <laughs> keep going for now. Um, There's another area, which was the preview area, which is games that are maybe just being released or haven't been released yet, maybe from Japan or from Europe. Um because they're more into board games than we are. So things in a lot of the production studios and people come out of those places. Um, there's a reason they're called Euro... Some kind of games are called Euro-style games. Uh, and they have people who are trained in the games, and you just sit down, and it's like, what's this game? And they're like, all right, I'll teach it to you. And they teach you how to play the game, and you play, and, you know, some games you're like, this might be a four-hour game. We'll just play a couple rounds and see if we like it. And then when it comes out next year or through the Kickstarter or whatever, like, I know I like it. Interesting. Um, and then there was even more sort of like in-depth area, which was an unpublished area, which was people who are like amateur game makers bring their games and they want to play test them and get feedback. Hmm. So we, we did all kinds of variations of that. And I will say that spending an entire day just like learning new games and like hearing people talk about games and discussing mechanics, like my brain was mushy. <laughs> yeah. Like, who I had done a lot of learning today, uh, which was good. But um it's, it's just really fun because it was like you're just really in it when you're playing games. At least I am. So like I didn't even take out my phone for like five, six hours of time, maybe wow. minus to check like, oh, what's the next thing yeah. I want to go to or whatever. So I just felt very immersed. I didn't think about work. I didn't think about I was too busy. Like, how do I learn this game? How do I win? How do I, you know, be there? So that was cool. Uh, it's really interesting that you, you talk about how they have these kind of demo situations because, you know, when you think about video games, they're fairly easy to demo right you you have a special demo build that is a particular level and you know you let everybody you just come up and 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 play it right Mm -hmm. um but with a board game you know how do you how do you set up a situation where you have somebody who can talk about your game and give somebody a 10 minute overview you know enough to get them interested in the game or you know like to be able to play a very short experience of some of these games which i'm sure can sometimes be you know a full play session could be hours on end mm-hmm. you know and how do you find a slice of that to show somebody it's a lot harder than finding a slice of a video game to demo um but it's kind of interesting that like these board game makers are you know figuring it out and the conventions are you know giving a space to make that happen because I would imagine so many board game sales just happen because I played it at my friend's board game night and now I want to have one of my own, you know? Yeah. Whereas, and there's a big like there's a, a the main website is like boardgamegeek.com mm-hmm. and they have like a rating system that's like probably the most important board game rating system out there. You know, whoever's in the top 10 on board game geek right now, like that's a guaranteed like couple probably hundreds of thousands of like units sold. So that site's like very important to the board game community. It also looks it looks like shit. I mean, they did a slight overhaul recently, but for a while, just like kind of like Reddit, where it's like this hasn't changed in 20 years. <laughs> um, but it just is what it is. It's, you know, it's more or less a forum, but they have a really good review and rating system that people uh, use. So and like, yeah, in the expo area, they're demoing games like in a more salesy environment. Yeah. They aren't pushy or anything, but 
Um, at least I didn't feel that way at any, any point. But it's kind of hard to get in those places. They only have one or two tables and people sure. are, you know, sometimes there's lines or you just have kind of just like stumble into it. There was one game company that like they're called Archon Games and their whole like stand was like blacks and grays and browns and skulls and like all of their stuff is like necromancy themed like all the guys are like long hair metal shirts and i was just like okay this is checking some boxes and so like we tried both their games both which are like one is like i mean both games you play necromancer necromancers and you're trying to like gain favor with the dark lore before hmm. the coming apocalypse uh and pretty fun games and i was like this is cool um but like it took us like till sunday till we could finally like get in there and try their games so um it was good and like i went to some panels which were really neat uh i didn't get to get to as many panels as i wanted to although i think they are all recorded on youtube so i might go back and watch some that i missed it's just hard to like when you're playing a board game you don't really know how long it's gonna last and like yeah you're with other people so you don't want to be like i'm gonna quit you know and go to this thing that's happening right now yeah scheduling rough thing like scheduling hard and fast things was difficult but um i wanted to read you some of the uh ones that I attended or was interested in attending. Uh, one was called, I did get to most of was called Lesbos snakes, orcs and vampires. Who are the TTRPG monsters? TTRPG. So yeah, actually this is not the one I went to. This is a different one, but basically it's like, you know, how do you frame monsters and like, are they allegories for marginalized communities? Uh. And like, there was a lot of like very heavy, there was a definitely a big emphasis on like, diversity and inclusion at this con which was pretty cool um i also uh went to one about race which was similar and basically like you know the experience of people of color like both in a game but also surrounding games in the game community um which was you know tough but important mm-hmm. there was one called um you'd like this one don't yuck on my yum the the role of evil alignments at the table yep um One's about, like, this one's called playing with character, character horror, and player safety. When it comes to, like, you know, how to basically be sensitive to people's, you know, um, trauma and experiences at the table. Huh. So, like, a lot of re- uh, ones, this one's called Beyond Tolkien, Queer and Non-Eurocentric World Building in role-playing games. Sure. Uh, the one I went to on Saturday was pretty cool was, uh, what was it called? On Saturday, I we went to one that was... Uh, build a it was a gaming studio that's made a, a couple games, uh, a number of games. They're at based out of Canada, playing on their name right now. But it was build a board game live. So these three guys who are board game designers um, run a company, and they said, "Okay, we're gonna make a board game here right now," mm-hmm. and like with audience participation, kind of like an improv style kind yeah. of thing. And then they announced at the end, though, like they did done this panel three or four times over the past few years. They said this time, though, we're actually gonna try and make this game. Hmm. So like send us your email, you're going to be in the book. And they talked a lot about more so less about the game design and more about the industry itself and the economics of it, which I found very interesting. So like, okay, we decided we're going to make a $50 medium size, medium weight board game. All right. So $50. Here's all the cuts that distribution and shipping and retail and wholesale are all going to take. So we have to make this game. Usually our, our price range is four to six dollars for the actual pieces. Sure. And they're like, okay, the box and the the booklet, that's always a dollar. And in China, uh, you know, to make a deck of cards, it's about 30 cents. Okay. And they just like went through every single piece and like, this is how much this is going to cost. And like, we have to think about how this is going to work. And it was really interesting. Um, 
they did a good job. It sounds probably kind of boring, but no, it's fascinating. I'm always, I'm always, I'm always very curious to hear about like what are the actual kind of con- design constraints of any particular medium? Because even when you just said like, oh, a medium size, medium weight, you know, it didn't occur to me that that's probably a very real concern when you're designing your board games because that is a probably a huge part of your um, supply chain cost is the weight of the thing. And, you know, it's not like making a, a video game where all the th- things weigh the exact same amount and it doesn't cost any more to ship, you know, Skyrim than it does to ship, you know, uh, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. Right. Um, I mean, I that is you're not wrong. I was referring weight is a term used in board games to kind of like refer to the relative like depth or complexity of a game. Oh, uh-huh. here but, I am. No, no, but like you're right too. Like they talk about like we want to use a specific a specific size box with certain weight materials because of the shipping and the standards and you know interesting things like um like example like you always want to make decks of cards and stacks for any game if you're gonna use a standard size card which you do want to use because that's the cheapest thing in stacks of 56 why because that's what a standard deck you know you know playing card deck is 56 cards Mm -hmm. you know 52 plus the jokers plus the instructions or whatever and all the machinery is built and all the paper size all the form factors are built for that so if you go outside of that then it starts getting like to yeah, paper or whatever and just very interesting like the little nitty-gritty that i found fascinating uh so that was pretty cool and then another panel that i really enjoyed on sunday was one called it was called take your fucking turn and it was about these two guys they did a really nice job talking about basically like you ever get that board game that says 60 to 90 minutes on the side of the box and it takes you four hours routinely it's because you're all taking too long to make your goddamn turns and like here's how to both encourage among your play groups to like move a little quicker yeah through some things but also one step removed like get better at the game and how to approach games and you'll be able to spend less time agonizing over the wrong things and like making your decisions quickly through things like heuristics and things that i wasn't aware of but things i'm actually really interested to go learn about now yeah that's it's interesting that you mentioned that because i was um and i guess it's it's true for board games as well as video games but there is there's kind of a question of is it possible to play a game wrong mm. and not just a oh you're bad at the game but you're playing it in a way that the designers did not intend and thus are not getting maximum enjoyment out of it yeah but is that something you can really quantify and like it's an interesting philosophical question and and i i'm you know sounds like at this panel it's a thing of one of the reasons it's taking so long is because maybe you guys are playing it wrong and this game actually wants you to make quicker decisions because that's part of the fun as opposed to agonizing over every decision um h bomber guy who's a youtuber has a really good um one of his videos on the dark souls series is kind of about this idea of um a lot of the reason that people don't like them is because they're playing the games quote-unquote wrong yeah um and the game allows you to play that way but if you do it that way you're not gonna have the same amount of fun as somebody who plays it the way it was designed to be played so just an interesting idea um of like how do you as a game designer whether we're talking about a board game or a video game you know kind of instill in people like hey this is this is more of a quick thinking kind of thing don't 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 stress you know or or you know, actually, this game works better if you're all really thinking hard about your moves. And, you know, I don't know. How do you how do you instill that? Yeah, it's tough. I think that it's really a matter of 
how your play group wants to play and you want to be in sort of congruence there right sure. like we play a, we play a game called spirit island quite frequently which is i've explained before in here is like the cooperative game uh it's pretty crunchy but um sometimes we can get so bogged down on trying to make the perfect play mm-hmm. and so it's just like guys let's just fucking do something like we've been working on this single play for like an hour and like we need to just move on and you know sometimes when you're out of out of alignment with the other players it, they can get disengaged and not care and not be participating so you really got to kind of try and like read each other and that's tough but they talked a lot about that actually like um they had these like they went through a couple examples and they basically made an equation of the call like fun economy it's like a game design thing that people are thinking about more which is basically like how much fun is the game and fun is a relative thing and different for different people but in general mm-hmm. divided by how long does it take <laughs> and that equation can be there's no perfect ratio uh but it there's some graphs there that are very interesting like a game like they showed some examples of like very crunchy like there's the big joke game is called the campaign for north africa which literally if you sit down and try and play that game it was apparently designed as this there's a some studio that i'm forgetting the name of but they make war games that are really intense like you play over like multiple days and and things like that and this one was basically designed as a joke because you literally get down to the granular level of individual soldiers in the army in north africa and if you actually sit down and try and play it even with some assistance from excel spreadsheets and stuff people have calculated that it'll take longer than the actual campaign for north africa took (laughs) um that's an extreme example but uh you know like they're like a game like monopoly is not very fun but takes fucking forever so that's the worst example where you get that sweet spot where a game's like really complex, you know, but like doesn't take too long and feels like a lot of fun. You also have little examples where like a game's like pretty fun, but also only takes like 10 minutes. That's okay, right? You can do a similar thing for video games too, I'm sure. Um, maybe not so much time of the total game, but time for like playtime or, or that kind of thing. But uh, it was really interesting. I learned a lot. It made me think a lot about games this weekend and approach them a different way. I sometimes get nervous about getting a little bit too into the weeds and like seeing how the sausage is made where I start to not enjoy playing the games as much as I'm, you know, critiquing them. And, you know, almost like I feel like it can almost get that way with media sometimes, right? Like can't just sit back and enjoy your constantly like just picking apart every little thing and thinking about, <laughs> you know, all the mechanics of one in and, and the industry and all that. And so not that we'd ever do that on this podcast. Well, I feel like if while you're watching it, you find yourself thinking about the capitalism of it it's not doing a good job true like you know um, i we we definitely dissect those things and i i mean i feel like if it's something you're thinking about on the back end cool if it's something that's like interrupting your enjoyment of the thing that's not the that's not your fault for being too like analytical that's the thing's fault for not not fully bringing you within the magic circle uh to borrow a storytelling phrase yeah uh, two last things about the con first is that um, going back to when I said that there was like a free play area and you could get little they these little signs you could put up that said like looking for group, right? Like you're someone or a group of people who want to get a couple more people to play a game. Mm-hmm. People put these up and that's a really cool idea. I really like it. And then so my friends and I were walking through the con and we saw there's an area, an area particularly designed for people looking for group. And you saw like three or four dudes with like standard commercial games sitting there with their sign by themselves looking very eager for a group and 
you know, kind of like when they make eye contact with you and they kind of like perk up a little bit and you're like, no, 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 don't, don't look at me. <laughs> oh, no. And, <laughs> I know. But, and I'm going to be so terrible here, but my friend's like, oh, maybe we should like go sit down and play with one of them. I was like, guys, I don't want to be an asshole, but if you're a person who's coming to a gaming convention, probably one of the biggest board game conventions in the country and you're coming by yourself, there's probably a reason. Not for everybody. Yeah. But like, you'd think that if you have a play group, you probably go together. You have some friends who are in your city, you probably get them to come. Like, if you're there, it's a high chance that maybe you're awkward or annoying or not fun to play with, or maybe even just like, maybe don't have like the best personal hygiene. There's a lot of things that could contribute to me not wanting to do that. So I was like, don't make eye contact, just keep walking. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really rude, but, uh, you know, it was just the thoughts that went through my head very quickly. And I said, no, no. and like, I played with plenty of random people I didn't know at, at demos and stuff. So, and that's a, but like the eagerness and the, the loneliness was just, it was just too much for me to handle. So I'm like, we, we can't sit near them. Yeah. Bums me out too much. Yeah. You kind of, you do kind of want to think like, yeah, at this stage in their life, if you know, it's cruel, but it's also like, eh, I'm here to have fun. I'm not here to change somebody else's life. Right. And like, if I'm going to sit down and like most games you play are going to be at least an hour. So it's like, and it's not like if we sit down to do a demo and we're like, okay, we get the idea. We'll see you later. Move on. And they got someone else ready to take the spot. Like they actually want to play the game to completion and like yeah. have a good game. It's like, that's not really what I want to feel obligated to do if I start. So, uh, yeah. Uh, the second thing, the last thing I'll say about it is if people are interested, uh, I thought that, you know, let us know through social media or the website or whatever, that if you want, I could do a little write up on, on some games I played that to keep an eye out for, to try, um, if people are so interested in, in, in board games, but I didn't want to do that unless people actually would find it valuable or interesting. So yeah, I will say I was, um, I was fucking exhausted Sunday night. I would imagine so. Cause like we were there till, I think we stayed till nine Friday and then nine 30 Saturday night. We took the train in. So that's probably about a little over an hour commute. And so it's about, you know, 12 hours and then Sunday we're there to about five or six. So 24 plus uh, maybe about 34 hour, 33 hours of games. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. It was that's good though. It was great. Yeah. So I w- w- would recommend to people it, the con ran very smoothly. There was, I mean, it's, it gets crowded at points, but I didn't really feel like I couldn't do something because of the crowd or the lines or had to yeah. wait in a line to go to the bathroom or anything like that. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty nice. So that's it. That's all I got. All right. Should we talk about um, the Mandalorian le- level five? Yeah. <laughs> level level five of the Mandalorian on PlayStation Four. <laughs> so I here's the thing, Greg. This show's starting to lose me. And yeah, me too. I just there's still a lot to like. There's still a lot I respect. It's still still gonna watch it, but I'm not really sure what we're doing. I mean, I know what we're doing, but it's not what we're doing isn't compelling at this point, as yeah. cute as Baby Yoda is. No, we're, we're definitely in the why do I care phase. And we were there for a while at the beginning, but it was kind of like, but that's OK. I'm still setting everything up. But now it really just feels like, oh, now we're just going to be doing a different space adventure every week. And the show has not followed up on that. Give me a reason to care about these characters. You know, it just kind of let that pass. And yeah. Ugh. And like. They're not even, I'm going to draw a bad example here, and you're not going to like it, but when I think of a show that's the most similar that I can think of in recent times, is a show like Firefly, which has that, like, westerny, space western, yeah. space western kind of feel, you know, uh, 
ship and its crew flying around with the protecting of a lost child, you know, with some different situations, different planets, you know, some some situation of the week stuff going on, but a through threat, a through thread running through. Uh, and I just think like any episode of Firefly has like 10 times more depth and character development and other whatever things that like this doesn't have. Which I'm not saying they need to do the exact same thing, but we're doing if we want to do space adventure of the week, that's fine. But you got to step up those individual adventures. Yeah, well, yeah, it's got to give me a, a reason to care about the um, about the characters or the broader world or I mean, so so let's look at Lone Wolf and Cub, which is a fantastic manga series, hugely influential. Um, and this borrows a fair amount from that basic story. Uh, samurai is framed for murder and disgraced, and he wanders the land um, with his infant son, that's the cub, um, basically doing the like kind of wandering mercenary thing. You know, he's he's moving from town to town and taking on jobs, righting wrongs, slicing dudes up, and all the while teaching his son about, you know, Bushido. And, but he, he, but he's also kind of slowly building towards being able to take his revenge on the bad samurais who framed him. It's a pretty basic setup, but as you move through the kind of, you know, um, bandit warlord of the week stuff, you also got this drip feed of getting closer to the the big pay, the big revenge payoff, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you also cared about these characters because you understood them and you understood their values and you know, perhaps in a heavy handed way from time to time, you would have these long scenes of the the main character, uh, Ito, talking to his, you know, his infant son and like explaining the way of the warrior. So you'd have these big philosophical things, but it helped you understand Ito's values and what mattered to him. And I am not getting any of that from the Mandalorian. Right. No, I don't. What does he care about? Yeah. Like, clearly, he has some sense of human decency that he doesn't want to see a innocent child get experimented on by the empire right Fine. but that's a low bar that's man. a low bar yeah <laughs> and, and we don't know and like i just feel like i don't want to harp on the length but i feel like if we added to we took each episode we have right now and take it from 33 to 43 minutes and added 10 minutes of through story and character development we'd have a better show uh, yeah i agree and i'm just not like on top of other complaints that like I can't say the CGI is bad. This is back to the conversation we had before about like the action feeling a little bit untethered and, you know, uh, loose. You know, there's there's been some spots where like some of the even like on the Mandalorian suit stuff, like there's a way to make things look like crappy, but still look realistic. And mm-hmm. there's been some costuming choices. where I'm just like, mm, that looks out of place. The characters, the side characters, they've all just felt like to use that like anachronistic to Star Wars. Like in this episode, we had, you know, Amy Sedaris, mm-hmm. who was great. Yeah. But like, didn't feel Star Warsy to no, me. No, you're right. It's it's weird. And I don't think it's her fault, but it just, it's, I'm not sure if it's because I recognize her or if there's just something off about the performances where it's just like, it almost feels like, hey, I'm in a Star Wars. Can you believe it? Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not, I don't know. It's weird. So, you know, and... And same, even same thing with the the young bounty hunter in this. I don't remember his name because who cares? But um, he dead now. Uh, spoiler alert. But 
even him, he just kind of didn't feel like he belonged in, in Star Wars. I, I don't know. There's just there's well, just something going on that just isn't sitting well with me. And you start – there's something about the pacing and it just seems like every episode, all the characters we meet, we just leave behind. It's tough for me to get invested or care about any of these characters. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, OK, who's this guy? Well, it doesn't really matter because he's going to be gone, you know? Right. And we are in episode five of nine? Eight? Yeah. And almost the opposite problem of Watchmen or the, almost like loose back around to the, the same problem we were concerned about with Watchmen – where it's just like, we don't know the central conflict. Where our watchman was throwing too much at us. This is throwing not enough at us. Yeah. And it, bad guys want Baby Yoda, but we don't know why. We don't even know who, like, yeah. the MP, Empire, but who, who part of the Empire. The Empire shouldn't, isn't even exist anymore, apparently. Like, we just don't know enough, and it's bothersome. And here's my concern, Greg. This show is pretty well critically regarded at this point. Fans seem happy with it. Critics seem happy with it, which is fine. Like I said, I'm, it's enjoyable enough to watch. It's fine. My worry is that at a corporate shitty level, Lucasfilm and Disney are going to be like, oh, okay, this is what people want and learn all the wrong lessons. Oh, that's, that's exactly what they're going to do. Um, I mean, I think this episode in particular, I did notice that some of the general reactions around the internet were a little bit more, were probably the most sour so far. Mm-hmm. They were just kind of like, it. you know, it feels like it's treading water. It's this one just had too many like references to the other movies like ah, Tatooine, right? Guys, remember this from Tatooine? Ooh, remember this from Tatooine? Um, so and I would agree. And again, I think it's just kind of like, right, where are we going? What's going on here? What's you know, what? why am I along for this ride? Why am I still in the room? And um, I'm not sure what lessons Disney will learn from it. I'm sure they'll learn some of the bad ones. I'm sure they'll learn that uh, baby Yoda Big success. So more babies, <laughs> Yodas, and that sort of thing in the future. But again, I'm not sure I care about what happens to Star Wars going forward. Like, whatever. Yeah. I don't care. Run it into the ground. It's done. I will say that I hope that they don't waste Ming Na Wen because she's great. And I actually liked her in this episode a lot. She didn't feel as incongruent with other people. Yeah, no, um, she felt like she was in a Star Wars. Yeah. And she's she's good. She's just awesome in general. Um, so I hope that I don't know that little thing at the end where she, you know, whoever found her, is she still alive? Is that she dead? I don't know. Like, I hope that, you know, we get we got a little taste of something more there. But once again, it's like, why are we only getting this now? Like, who is that? Yeah, I just feel like we were on a decent path after the first two or three episodes. And I just yeah. feel like we've taken too long of a detour. And like I said, I think treading water is a pretty good way to put it. So. Do you have anything else? Nope. Or anything more specific Let's about it? Let's talk about or? Watchmen. Yeah, I think that's what we really want to talk about. Yeah, I have, uh, what is this, eight pages of notes? Jesus Christ. You well, the part of that is because I tried to map out the whole timeline. but Which I think is appreciative. I mean, you know, this might, is, you put some work on this. Reminding myself, we have a website. Might be a good yeah, place you should to probably it. post it. Um, so anyway, um, even though I ended up with a lot of notes from this, my notes are really more just about trying to untangle the plot and the world building mm-hmm. and shouldn't be necessarily an indication of the quality of the episode, which um, I'm I, I know I'm going to lose, uh, you know, lose points because this is going to be an unpopular opinion. But I think this was the worst episode of the run. I could probably agree, although that's kind of like it still is a good episode of television, sure. it's just the lower of the bunch. Still so. good. Yeah, but. And I want to start that off by talking about um, 
an episode of television that this has a lot of comparisons to. Um, and I'm not obviously not the first person to make this, but that is, episode of television is called The Constant. That's Lost Season 4, Episode 5. This, for many people, is one of the greatest episodes of television in, in their uh, conceptions. And uh, they're wrong and dumb babies because it's bad and 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 it, for dummies um that's not true it's actually i mean in isolation it's a good episode of tv but in terms of what it represented for lost uh it was a good episode of television and a very bad episode of lost um uh i didn't like it at the time it premiered because um it was this break in the action kind of because at this point in 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 Lost, we're you know we found out that there's a freighter off the coast of the island, and it's like the first contact, real contact we've had with the outside world in four seasons. And there's all this mystery: whose boat is it? What does this all mean? And episode four, we are flying in a helicopter towards the freighter, and you're like, oh my god, oh my god. And then episode five is like, actually, wait, let's do a weird time travel romance. <laughs> Before we get before we really do anything with that freighter, let's do a time travel romance. Um, so I didn't like it for that reason. But also to me, this signaled a turning point in Lost where it changed from a sci fi mystery show to a fantasy soap opera. And for a lot of people, this is when Lost got good. And those people are bad people and monsters. Um, this for me was the turning point of when Lost really lost itself. But the the parallel here starts with who wrote this episode. One, Damon Lindelof, who also wrote this episode of Watchmen. Um, and he also won an episode for that, ep- or won an Emmy <laughs> for that episode of Lost. So that feels a little scummy because these are almost the same episode, like plot-wise, st- structurally. So this episode of Lost, very quick overview. Um, we have a character in Lost named Desmond. He's this weirdo. He's been on the island before the castaways get there. He's very mysterious. He's a little bit, you know, got a screw loose. Um, so in, in, in the episode, the constant, he becomes unstuck in time and his consciousness is bouncing back and forth between the present day of the show, 2004 and 1996. Um, in the present day of 2004, he's got this like temporary amnesia where he thinks it's 1996 again, but then he's bouncing back and forth between the real events of uh, 2004 and 1996. Um, now, Lost, up until this point, was famous for its use of flashbacks just as a storytelling device. Every episode of the show was the current action plus these character flashbacks that would flesh out the character's backstory, but also have some resonance with the present day events of the show. Um, but what we learn is that these flashbacks that he's having aren't just flashbacks in the traditional sense. His mind is actually traveling back in time to the extent that he can then like interact with the past when he's in his 1996 body. Um, so we've got psychic time travel here. Um, and this culminates with into a, a two character in 2004 says to him, the next time you flash back to 1996, Find me in 1996 and give me such and such coordinates or frequency, whatever, some kind of information MacGuffin. So Desmond does that. He finds him 
1996 when this other character is a professor at Oxford and it's like experimenting with time travel. So he gives the professor uh, the coordinates from the future. The professor plugs them into his mind control device and um, all of a sudden now he's able to make his his rat lab rat uh, psychically time travel success. He made time travel, but then he warns Desmond in the past hey, you're going to get like time dementia and it's going to make your brain break unless you find a constant, which is this thing that exists in, you know, kind of on either side of your time warp. So for Desmond, that's something in 1996 and in 2004. So um, Desmond decides that the person in 1996 that he he needs to find is his ex-girlfriend, Penny. They had a tragic love affair that got cut short Um you know, star-crossed lovers, all that. And he finds her and he gives her a cryptic message of like, don't change your phone number. I'm going to call you in 2004. Don't change your phone number. Um, And she's like, that's weird. So he disappears and he's back in 2004 and he calls her and she answers it and um, and she's his constant. And they reconnect in 2004. His time dementia gets cured and love has conquered time. And that's the episode, The Constant. Everybody loved it, whatever. It was well put together, but uh, it, it, it was a, a bad turning point for the show. But you see, this was Damon Lindelof's big moment. This was his big hit. Everyone would say this is the best episode of TV he's written. And then he basically says, you know what I'm going to do for Watchmen? I'm going to play the hits. I mean, it's like if James Hetfield from Metallica started a new band and their first big hit was like, here comes Gravel Man instead of Enter Sandman. Like it just it's it just seems kind of shitty <laughs> that I, as I'm watching, I'm like this feels a lot like that episode of Lost. Mm. And then it's like, I bet you that fucking Lindelof wrote this. Yep. Oh, of course he did. And it's just it borrows a lot of the same tropes and the same ideas. And that was kind of off putting for me because it really and it's like we just talked about of like when I'm watching it and all of a sudden I'm thinking about what I know outside of the show, the show's fucking up. Mm-hmm. And if it's this obvious of like, oh, he's just rewriting his hit, it, it, that just felt shitty to me. And it, it pulled me out of the show. Um, uh, so that's one of the things I didn't like about this episode. <laughs> gotcha. I think that's completely fair. I didn't know any of that, but now I do. Uh, so a lot in this episode for sure. Obviously, the big piece is focuses on how Dr. Manhattan perceives time, right? Yeah. And for me, this is it's hard to call it a weakness because it's not and it's not a weakness in that someone wrote it poorly or it's just it's inherent to anything with time travel has paradoxes and plot holes. Yeah, there's no way to make a foolproof airtight time travel of any kind story um this is kind of you know time travel light because it's more like seeing the future and seeing the past although there is obviously the sort of circle of you know where angela quote unquote kicks off this whole thing uh by basically communicating through dr manhattan to a different time Mm -hmm. um interestingly enough star wars this is the this is kind of the closest that Star Wars got to time travel towards the end of the old EU, where uh, through a you know long story short, Jason Solo, the son of Han and, and Leia, uh, he basically goes on a journey to learn from a different 
force groups besides Jedi and Sith to try and be like, hmm, what other people do? And he picks up a lot of cool abilities. One being, I forget what they call it, but basically it's like send your essence kind of back in time. You can't really interact with anything, but you kind of can. And when I read it, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, this is like one thing that you avoid because otherwise you end up like, you know, I'm sure that people have made some sort of crazy things to make Star Trek make sense. But (laughs) the amount of time travel in that show is something that's always been maybe nervous to give it a shot. Right. Even though I love time travel, multiverse and all the kind of shenanigans, it just makes it there's going to be things that don't make sense. And it's hard for my brain sometimes to let go of that. Yeah. I think the best way for me to get my head around Dr. Manhattan's timey-wimey nonsense is he perceives the future the same way you and I perceive a memory of the past. I can I can recall it. I can see it all happening, but in the act of remembering it, I can't change anything about it, right? Mm-hmm. So at any given moment, he is he has memories of the future. So it's that thing of like, oh, you know the future, why can't you change it? The same way I can't change the past, just by thinking of my memories of it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, I get that. And that even works with the concept of him passing the information to Will in 2009, um, that creating that time paradox. Because where did that information come from, right? Where did that information originate in the timeline? Um, which is something that Watchmen has not grappled with historically so right interesting um i actually think one of the futurama like movies when they did like those three movies for sci-fi channel or something i feel like they Mm -hmm. did an episode that was like that had the same idea of where you know of you know kind of a time loop of information and how where it comes from but it's an interesting question um for me the big one hangs up on this idea of so at some point in so well, so in 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 Doctor Manhattan's relationship with Angela, he realizes that his uh, future vision <laughs> is a problem for having a romantic relationship. So he looks for a way to switch it off. Okay, fine. But if he's experiencing everything simultaneously, that means in his previous two romantic relationships, previous in our timeline, with uh, his first wife Jane Osterman, and then with Laurie. Uh, Jespezik, the who's now Laurie Blake, he would have known that. He would have he would have seen, okay, in the future, I figure this out and I I will try to come up with a way to solve it. Now that things get weird once the memory implant goes in, then he's got like a essentially a gap in his future memory. But at some point he learns, like he he has always known that this will be a problem and I will find at least a temporary solution to it. So, and I I know, I get it. It's the idea of like, well, he is, you know, he does have that kind of like, it's destined and it's just going to happen. And I, that's, I see it happening, but I can't do anything about it. It's because it's a memory. Like, okay, I get it a little bit, but it's just, it's, again, it's something I have to think about. Um, And this is, I think, one of the biggest overall flaws with the show. I don't know how you write around it, but the fact that you have a character who can see the future and yet in the comic... That character doesn't see the future that takes place in the show. Now, right. obviously, they can't go back back and rewrite, you know, Alan Moore's Watchmen. But that's one of the big seams that has started to show now that they've they've brought Manhattan in. Right. 
And I mean, I'd be curious to see, you know, they're focusing on the last line of, well, the last line, the last line that Dr. Manhattan says to Vite in the comic, you know, nothing ever ends. I, you know, I don't see that it's too disjointed at this point that it doesn't make me think about that piece too much. It's more things in the moment, like, for example, to skip ahead a little bit when, you know, when he gets zapped, like that scene felt hard because it's like you're Dr. Manhattan, dude, just blow the thing up. Like there was, there wasn't enough. I think they could have made that scene a little different where it was like he was distracted trying to save her. And then it happens, you know, like it was always going to happen. We knew that. Okay, fine. He knows that. And, you know, in the act of telling her it's going to happen, she gets even madder and she's going to go try and save him. And by doing that, she's causing him to require to save her. And then, he gets zapped. Okay. But when he just like stops and lets it happen, it's like, that just seemed, it just seemed weird. Yeah. Now we don't know what he knows coming forward. So there's still possibility that this could all be hammered into line in the next episode. Maybe. Um, But I'm just going to try as we move forward. Like I'm just getting this all out now that like, this is plot holy. And I don't, like I said, I don't know if there's a way to write around this because it's it's in, it might just be a irreconcilable thing in a narrative like this. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to see where it goes because having a character with literally no free will and is evidence that there, your characters that no characters have free will. That's kind of tough fiction to engage with, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like, and the comic kind of danced around the idea of like, well, how much like is Dr. Manhattan right about how, little impact he can have on things right like is that part of his his personality character trait that like because he is seeing these things it makes him impassive and not act and right and there was there there's a little bit and one of the uh, write-ups i read one of the recaps i read suggested that um you know there's two lines in this episode which talk about his imagination and whether he has one or not and could it just be that because his imagination is is limited just as a natural element of his personality that he might be he might just not have thought about how he could you know how he could impact things within you know this this timeline because right. like when when angela creates that time loop it's almost like did john just never think of this before being able to mm-hmm. transmit information into the past you know yeah just cuz he's he's not an imaginative guy. He's, right. you know, he's, um, he's not Vite. He's not the guy who thinks of, you know, crazy solutions to problems. He's just a, he's, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a lab technician. He's a watch repairman. You know, he doesn't. And as a result, he's, you know, he's got all this power, but doesn't have, um, you know, th- there's the old saying of, Oh, you know, mankind's, um, reach, you know, exceeds his grasp, you know, mm-hmm. what we want is beyond our capabilities. And maybe it's the opposite for John Osterman, that his grasp extends, you know, his reach. He, you know, he's capable of so much more, but he just doesn't have the, um, he doesn't have the imagination or the aspiration for it. Yeah, it's very possible. And there's definitely something there. I think there's also the complicating factor of like, there is stuff that's outside of his control you know what i mean like the tachyon related things like that's what was the sort of obfuscating thing in the comics and then obviously with the plan a here uh with the the thing that Vite built once again it's confusing 
how that all works because, okay, you know, he knows that it happens eventually, but in the moment he doesn't know what it is, but he, he knows everything at once. So he should know what it is. And like, does that rewrite his future when he sees it? But it doesn't because he clearly knew about it before. It doesn't, it doesn't work. So I'm, I'm thinking that we're not going to see, this is not the last we're going to see of like, quote unquote, tachyon irradiation, radiation affecting him. Like, I imagine that something in this next episode, like either something with the Seventh Cavalry doing something with tachyons or something with Lady True doing something with tachyons or Vite and or combination, like could change his, you know, basically put that free will back in the show a little bit. I'm not sure about that. So I have a little bit of a theory here. Um, cause I do think that, yes, we spent, we spent this entire episode, um, not only <clears throat> establishing the relationship between John and Angela, which I'm sorry, I still don't buy. I did not buy their chemistry. I did not, there was nothing in her character so far that we've seen of her that made me believe like she would actually want to have anything to do with Dr. Manhattan mm-hmm. and that it all changes over just kind of a weird little magic show. He doesn't a bar. I didn't buy it. So that's just, you know, that's just a show making problem. You know, whether it's the actors or the director or the script, don't care. I just didn't quite buy it. It just didn't never work for me. Um, But we spent a lot of the episode working out how Dr. Manhattan works, right? Mm -hmm. What are the extents and limits of his capabilities? How does his time experience work? And I feel like... um, we're definitely going to rely on that for the finale. Like yeah. that, that's going to clearly matter. So I want to get to my theory of what I think the finale is, but I want to talk about some other stuff first. Um, so my favorite scene in all of this was actually the scene between um, Dr. Manhattan and uh, Vite in oh, Karnak. So good. Yeah. Like that whole thing, like just going to Karnak again and seeing the lab and it was so right out of the comics. Yes. And yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Like this was, I mean, it, it's such a great job of, you know, it was kind of like the scene, um, glasses flashback. Mm, yeah. Where it just like, oh, that, that feels like the 1985 from the comic. Like this, it just felt like Karnak, but from the comic, but just, you know, 20 years on. Um, but also like, I really liked you know, we've seen three different Adrian Vites in this show so far. You know, we've we saw the the video of him from the eighties, and then we see this like the two thousands. You know, the two thousand nine, and then we see him at the manor. But like this version of him, where he just seems kind of old and sad, and a little mm-hmm. broken down, and a little tired. Um, I thought was really touching. Yeah. Like there's one little moment where he's talking to John and I don't even know the um, when it happens, but you can just see his face kind of fall a little bit when he, you know, he doesn't get the reaction he wants out of John or something like that. And and like you empathize with him like Jeremy Irons is so good. Yeah, he's amazing in these scenes. And like, you know, he's still cocky and arrogant, but you can tell that there's a weight there of what he did. That yeah. Even though he knows he's right, he he's you know, he, you're here, he's he's craving validation he's craving admiration he wants to be a hero like Vite is in many ways the villain of the first of of the the book yeah but in the best sort of way one of the best ways probably ever seen like he not only is the hero of his own story and thinks that he's everything he thinks he is a capital h hero yeah 
And capital H heroes, no matter who they are, want admiration well, and validation. Yeah. And he he thinks of well, he desperately needs someone to tell him he's a hero. Yeah. And we saw that at the end of the book. You know, he basically asks John, like, can you just like you can see the future? Can you just tell me I did a good job? Like you're the only one. You're the only person who could possibly tell me that I did a good job here. Um, and John's like, no, I'm not going to tell you whether or not because, you know, in that kind of point, nothing ever ends. Meaning like, you know, like, what, what do you mean? Did it all work out in the end? You know, mm-hmm. like, when do you yeah. I mean, because that's the way history and time works is that nothing's ever really ever good or ever really bad because things have long reaching consequences. And um, and he's still looking for that from John and still doesn't get it. Um, and it's really sad. Yeah. Um, but I will say in that scene with man, I was so I got so pumped up when, you know, Dr. Manhattan asks fight, you know, like, can can you he's talking about what he can do to help me. He's like, will you help me? And I was like, say it. I knew it was coming. I'm like, say it. And I was like, oh, I already did. And it's like, yeah, ah, yeah. yes, he said it. I, I said it out loud. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I built it three months ago. And 30 years. Okay, <laughs> yeah. fine. Good, good, good. Um, and you almost, and, and the best part about it was, was that the show was winking at you, but Vite also was like, oh, I'm glad I get to do this again. This is a fun yeah. little joke between us, right, John? Like, yeah. I was like, it's, Man, that's a really good little moment of, you know, being able to wink at the fans in a way that isn't like that makes sense in universe, you know? Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think we also got so much in this episode where we really understand Vite's motivations now Mm -hmm. that, you know, he thought he was going to get this, you know, this utopia of validation. But what he got there wasn't what he wanted. He didn't want the unconditional admiration of all the clones. Like, that wasn't going to do it. He needed to be actually admired for something he did. Yeah, he needed to earn it. Right. And he made the play, and, you know, that clearly didn't get get him anywhere. So that's when he said, like, ah, fuck it, I'm out of (laughs) here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting, like, man, when he asks to go there, the emotion he pours into that without being overwrought, he's just so fucking good, man. I just, like, I can't get over the casting and the performance by him. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I hope that someday, like when this is all done, people do like a super edit of like all the scenes he's in. And I like, you know, and probably amount to like what, 10 minutes maybe on YouTube. And it's like just going to watch it over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's he's been amazing. And I think that um, they've done a really excellent job in the show of he's been a wild card and he still is. But at least now I can start to be like, but now I know what he wants. Now I know, you know, what he's after. Um, I still don't know what True wants. I know what Will mm-hmm. wants. I know what Angela wants, I think. I, I know what Veet wants. But like as each one of these kind of fills in, you're like, all right, I get it now. I'm understanding the character motivations. I'm like, this is keeping me interested. Um, and what Veet wants is really like human and understandable. Um, you know, he's had 20 30 years to stew in the fact that he's never gotten credit for what he thinks is his greatest accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's going to come back to earth to get it. Maybe, maybe, or does he have another plan? So, um, it really seems like when I went through and did the math that the math really works out for that thing that crashes in the beginning of episode four or whatever it is. And you know, the thing that true is after, Mm-hmm. 
it really would make sense timeline wise for that to be Vite coming back to Earth in some kind of craft. Yeah. Like we see him the post credit scene um, in this episode. There's, I think, seven candles on the cake. Mm -hmm. And so if you do the math, that puts that in December of 2016 that he's getting that. And then if, you know, looking at some of the Apocrypha and, and, you know, if you figure, um, you know, it's probably going to take about a year, even with True's fancy space jets to get from um, Jupiter back to Earth. And if you figure if she sees the save me D message in, I think, like 2015 or whatever it was based on the number of anniversaries he's had on Europa. OK, year to get the ship out there. He gets on the ship. He comes home. And if it was, you know, all part of her plan, she would have it timed down to the minute of when that thing is going to land, because that's all math. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so that means he's been on Earth for two years, for a year or two now, probably working with True in secret on something. Um, and that would seem very Watchmen-y, that he's actually been on Earth the entire time we've been watching the show. Yes. I think that would feel, that would feel right in the right way because you think, you know, oh, this is all happening simultaneously and you start realizing it's not. And then realizing once again, like, oh, he's been working on this the whole time or part of the plot. We didn't realize it. Yeah. Potentially. So I have a theory about what the finale is. Okay. And this is based on everything we've seen so far, plus a lot of the PDPedia readings that you can find on the HBO website, um, kind of the apocrypha. And I'm, I'm naming this theory uh, reverse unbreakableing. Okay. I think that's what True is doing. So you've seen Unbreakable, right? I have not. You have not seen Unbreakable. Well, I'm going to spoil it for you. That's fine. Um, it's M. Night Shyamalan's year old movie, so. best movie, low bar. Um, <laughs> anyway, the plot of Unbreakable is Bruce Willis learns that he is kind of a superhero in kind of a normal world, meaning he is um, significantly stronger than the average person. He may be indestructible. Um, he's got kind of a spider sense for crime. He learns this when he's the only survivor of a massive train wreck uh comes out without a scratch everybody else is dead he comes out without a scratch um so the movie is a little bit building up of like oh is he is this what's happening and then there's the samuel l jackson character who um calls himself mr glass he's in a wheelchair he has a rare genetic condition where his bones break very very easily and he kind of mentors the uh bruce willis character and says like you're you're a comic book superhero like, you're real. The comic books are real, and you're one of them, and I'm a big comic books fan, and I want to help you be a hero. Movie continues. What we learn is that Samuel L. Jackson's character, Mr. Glass, uh, was this comic book-obsessed kid with this deformity um, and brittle bones situation, um, but also very, very intelligent. And he read comic books, and he realized that somebody like him was the villain, because heroes and villains are always mirror opposites of each other, right? So... He has been orchestrating terrorist attacks for years, trying to find his opposite hero, right? The guy who's unbreakable so that he can, like, be mm. complete. So that's a twist. It, pretty good. There's always got to be a twist. Yes. Or six. Um, <laughs> but my theory is that what True is doing is she is orchestrating um, Angela bringing Dr. Manhattan out of hiding and... Cyclops trying to build their 
um, racist Dr. Manhattan. They're Dr. White Supremacy. Because she wants to do a better version of the squid thing. Um, because she wants to create a real villain for Dr. Manhattan to fight. So that um, in order to like bring hope and some kind of moral direction to the world, whereas Veidt's squid routine only brought fear and anxiety to everyone. She's going to save humanity by giving them, by by making Dr. Manhattan an actual hero instead of just some weird god. Mm. And a hero that's going to probably fight and destroy the paragon of racism. Right, like an ab, like, like like a... You know, like a, a a bad guy that everyone can agree is the bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. She's going to create an a, you know a, an obvious bad guy for him to fight, and a, a bad guy that is like relevant to the world, right? Not just some extra dimensional squid that has no moral or political affiliation or anything like that. So here's how I get there. Um, we know that True wants to save humanity by helping them think about the future, not the past. Fine. We also know that True has been kind of rehabilitating the image of Dr. Manhattan this whole time. Like, she's the one who set up the phony camera on Mars that's showing, like, you know, animations of Dr. Manhattan just, like, goofing around on Mars. Mm -hmm. Why do that, right? Because she's known since sometime after 2009, because presumably Will told her, Dr. Manhattan is pretending to be a dude in Tulsa. But even before that, she knew he was on Europa because Vite tells John in Karnak, you know, he's, you know, John says, like, how did you know I was on Europa? Vite says, a little elephant told me. We know that True has a lot of um, ele- elephant symbolism in her stuff. You know, her, her company logo looks a little bit like an elephant. Uh, her mom's parenting book was called, like, Elephant Mom or something. Like, it's, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um so she knew that Dr. Manhattan was on Europa, but in, but decided to, like, run all this fake, oh, Dr. Manhattan's on Mars, you can watch him, and also, he wants to listen to your prayers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why would you do that if you weren't trying to, like, actively rehabilitate his image? Plus, in some of the PDPedia stuff, it's mentioned that she, like, started an entire, like, foundation to, like, dis- de- debunk the theory that he was giving people cancer, Um so it's a lot. So it's almost like she's trying to build him up as this moral guy that maybe he isn't. But she's trying to create a new narrative for who Dr. Manhattan is. Plus, there's the lingering question of. So we found out in this episode that Will definitely knew who Dr. Manhattan like he was hiding. Right. He knew mm-hmm. where he knew how to find he knew all the information and presumably passed that on to true. But the Seventh Cavalry also seemed to know that Cal was Dr. Manhattan. And we're right. waiting for the right moment to spring their trap. How the hell would they know? Yeah, good question. Because and how would they get access to all that crazy tech they're building? Right. And some of it has true logos on it, which presumably mm. it could be stolen or not. Um, but the only people who knew that Dr. Manhattan w- was in Tulsa were Angela, Cal. But, well, no, not Cal. <laughs> he didn't know. Angela, Will. Um, and Will probably wasn't telling Cyclops. <laughs> Uh, and Vite, probably. I'm not sure exactly how many details Vite had, but well, let's assume he worked it out. He's a smart guy. He had enough details. Um, Will's not telling Cyclops. Vite probably wouldn't tell Cyclops about it because um, Vite, like, he would hate the Seventh Cavalry and Cyclops and everything mm-hmm. they stood for. Like, he he's a like he's like a very standard, you know, 
liberal progressive guy, right? Yeah. Like, and it, it's pretty clear that he has like legitimate politics and he's not going to side with those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, especially not if their plan is to make like a racist version of Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> um, so the question is, how do they know? And the only person I can think of that might do that would be true. And why is true going to tell them? Um, she's certainly not a white supremacist. She has nothing to gain from their vision um, unless it's all part of her larger game. And she's very concerned with narratives. She's talked about it a lot before. Um, so I'm wondering if she is trying to, you know, orchestrate a climactic showdown between Dr. Manhattan and a legitimate villain, a legitimate, like, evil villain. Mm-hmm. So that's my theory. Interesting. I like it. Uh, I'd be curious what um, the role of some of the other lingering plot points would be in yeah. that. Like, I still feel like, you know, the Millennium Clock is a little bit unclear the role of uh what's vice role in all of that if he's in on it if um and also like the i feel like the mind control is going to come again i just don't know how yeah uh, but yeah no i think like that's a really cool it feels very watchmany to do especially and also like relevant to our current you know state of things like in the 80s you know you had this idea of mutually sure destruction and then they trump we trumped that with a different kind of mutually assured destruction, right? Like we need to work together because otherwise we're all going to die as opposed to, we just need to just not quite get mad, not fight each other to blow each other up where now, you know, the world's very different. And one of the things in our collective consciousness is like superheroes and capital H heroism. And that'd be an interesting thing for the show to play with, right? Invent a hero to inspire people or I'm not sure what the exact end goal is, but yeah, I'm not entirely because right. Cause there's mind control and there's the other lingering threads of like, yeah, what does the clock do? Right. Um, I can't get out of my head that the clock's like a giant mind control device. I just, I had that idea in my head. I just can't get rid of it, but I don't know how, how that works. Cause the mind control technology is like based on seeing light. Right. Like why not right. just run it through a, you know, why not just like, you know, pirate the Super Bowl and run your mind control, you know? Right. Um, I'm not sure. Right. Cause, and memory matters too. We've been talking right. a lot about memory. Um, you know, is it a giant memory eraser thing or it's going to implant mm-hmm. a new memory in everyone's head? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. the, there's a PDPedia thing that it's like a memo that PD writes that seems to take place refer it seems to be refer like it's, it's written in the aftermath of the finale it seems like yeah it's weird that suggests there is some kind of like big showdown between like big you know like like it sounds like what they're describing is like there are people cleaning up the corpses of radioactive giants <laughs> like it's kind of described in oblique terms but it seems like that's what's happening um and that event is somehow linked to the Greenwood Cultural Center, which is where Angela goes to, you know, interact with the like reparations database. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, um, there's yeah. also they spent a lot of time in this episode talking about how Dr. Manhattan can pass his powers on by like making a special pie for someone to eat that has his powers in it. And then he's making waffles seemingly randomly in a later scene. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and it also depends on like. Is is what Dr. Manhattan has seen the complete story 
Like, does he know everything that's going going to go down in the finale? Or is there some more tachyon, you know, mind, you know, his future sight, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, is that confusing that? Because, you know, he says that their relationship ends tragically. But all relationships end tragically. True. He also implies that uh, he doesn't seem to talk much or is hinting at anything past that. So does it imply that he dies at the end of this? That, like you said, maybe there's a big battle and he is one of the casualties. Um, be an interesting play. I think right now, you know, and I'm, I think your ideas are really cool. I definitely think that right now, obviously, True and Vite are the wild cards. Mm-hmm. Dr. Manhattan doesn't mention them at all. Doesn't mean he is not aware of them. But you know, is there more tacky on bullshit blocking him? You know, I'm pretty sure we can safely assume that it's Vite that crashed on Earth. Yeah, I mean... You'd have to introduce some other extraterrestrial element, you know, in episode nine <laughs> to explain yeah. that. Although, why would it be so important for her to buy that property just because he crashed there? You know what I mean? I don't know. Right. No, that, like, that's a, why. That's an interesting yeah. question of because if if I own a plane and it crashes on your farm, that plane is still mine. right right like it it doesn't just become yours because it landed on your farm um yeah man finders keepers yeah no there's there's some interesting questions there um uh it still feels like we need a resolution surrounding will a little bit yes um for sure some you know his role in this and i think he he needs to be a player in the last episode in some way uh i think i don't know I'm curious. Well, one other minor complaint. I think they made a slight mistake, and I don't mind the blue paint during the initial pre-reveal, like when Dr. Manhattan's like with her at the bar and different scenes like that, but I think that post-reveal, they should have had him glowing slightly the whole time, just because the paint isn't, especially on the face, isn't great in that, like, when it's yeah. a cow and, and the paint, and it just doesn't seem... I agree. It, it wasn't working for me either. Um, like if they would have had him glowing, even just slightly the whole time, it would have maybe taken, it would have just made it seem a little more like Dr. Manhattan as opposed to just like a guy in blue paint. Yeah. I mean, I, on one hand, I don't mind the fact that he wasn't like a big cartoon, blue cartoon through most of it. Yeah. I'm glad like that, that he wasn't like fully CGI or something like that. But, but I agree. Like it just looked like a guy in blue paint. It didn't look like a blue guy, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think if, if maybe they just, I don't know, like maybe a, a a makeup that had a little bit more like iridescence to it. Yeah. Or, or even like just, less texture almost like, yeah. Like, Cause you just, can really feel the texture of a skin through that. Just, and that was what Just put off. some glitter in there. Um, <laughs> or just if they'd maybe given it a little bit more of a little bit of a polish with CG, just to kind of make it seem a little bit more Dr. Manhattan-y. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's tough. How do you translate that to the big screen? It works very well in the comics because he's just this flat blue. Um, right. and, uh, yeah, I don't know, but I, I, I agree. It just didn't quite work. Yeah. I think that if the, like I, said, I think the polish of CGI would have been the best because the, the way I interpreted the way he's presented the comic is sort of almost like, almost like if you, if you felt his skin, it would feel kind of like plastic. Yeah. Almost like if you were going to do like a, like you're going to touch like a Ken doll or something like that. That's kind of what I feel like he should, I mean, obviously he's got a penis, but, um, just like the, the feeling of it should be smooth and not like skin like. Yeah. It were yeah, smooth or, you know, marbly or something. Um, because there's even a line in the comic where Laurie talks about like 
you know, there's like a slight like electrical feeling when you touch his skin. So like it, it really should look a little more otherworldly. But at the end of the day, I much prefer this version and also how they have these kind of different like almost different like phases of his Dr. Manhattaniness. Like there's yeah. like glowing white eyes version and then there's, you know, um uh non-glowing normal eye version. So you kind of like I was like that's kind of a neat effect. Um, and you kind of get this thing of like he's kind of glitching in and out of his godhood a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, that's neat. It's kind of a neat idea. Yeah. And like Yahya Abdul-Mateen does such a good job as him. Like his performance as him, I think, is really strong. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, I didn't like it started to feel really um, cheap is the best word I can say. How like they just didn't show his face until he transformed. Mm. And like they just it it just got so laborious to be like, hey, we're not showing you his face. And I don't know what they were trying to do there because. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think one thing was more practical thing that like there is no good reason for him to look like Cal prior to his transformation. You can you you can do the hand wavy thing where he still looks like Cal afterwards for some reason. Fine, whatever. Um but I don't think they wanted to cast someone differently. Yeah, but that's why I say it just feels it starts to feel cheap and low budget, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, I get why they did it. There's, you know, but it's just I'm getting all these shots of his tie and I'm like, OK, it starts to it, it stops feeling artsy and just starts to feel like, OK, you're just not showing me his face for a reason. But right. I already know who he is. Right. There's no reveal here. So right. I just didn't like it. Yeah, it was it was a strange choice. Uh but anyway, I do like the performance that yeah. he does. I think he does like a good like he's not so I think that's a tough thing to do because like you want to be aloof and a little robotic, but not too much where it feels like a caricature or over the top because uh, he's like Dr. Manhattan. One of the things I, I like about his character is that despite the fact that he is so aloof and removed and is experiencing time differently, that makes him act like a weirdo. He still is. And he's like basically a god. He's also still a human inside. Like he wants to like do something completely nonsensical, non-logical, like fall in love and, and you know, and things like that. And like, you know, make love and things that like aren't you think when you're a God, you probably be kind of past some of that shit. Right? right. Because he still has human emotions. Right. Exactly. Despite he might not he might not even think he does, but he does. Like, I just I always really like that sort of juxtaposition. I think they did a good job of that in this show. Like, not forgetting that. Right. And he does and, a and very it, good job of portraying that kind of like I'm a s I'm I'm watching all of this happen around me and it's kind of sad. Um, but like I'm here, but I'm kind of resigned to it. But yeah, he he there's a very there's a co- complexity to it again of being this kind of sad god. That he's pulling off and it's really well done. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have any other additions to your theory. I feels like there's almost part of me that thinks that like some, like you said, they put a lot of emphasis on him giving his powers to somebody else. Yeah. I don't know who that person would be. Part of me is like, oh, maybe he's going to give it to Angela. Doesn't seem quite right. Nope. I don't know who that would be. So um, the, I also don't know the role of some of the other characters in the final episode. Like, are we ever going to talk about Petey's weird silver suit? What's the role of Laurie? And I think you're right about Glass being uh, disguised as a seven cavalry member yeah. since they're missing a mask. That ex- that would explain the um, the way they pointed out in 
not this room, most recent episode, the episode before, oh, there's one seventh cavalry guy in his bunker who doesn't have a mask. Mm-hmm. And we were like, why were they showing us that guy? Did you recognize that guy? And it's like, well, because they're, t- they're they're planning the there's a missing mask. Right. Glass has it. Yeah. Um. So I think he's going to show up at seventh cavalry headquarters to, you know, do some kind of last minute rescue or, or something. But um. I think there's two possibilities of who gets Dr. Manhattan's powers. One is their adopted son, Topher, because there's a weirdness to that kid. Mm -hmm. And he was building, he was using his erector set to build like the manor. Mm -hmm. Why? And he also seemed to have like a weird little bit of like mind reading ability back in like one of the first episodes. And you're like, ah, is that just a sensitive kid? Or, and if, um, and if, at some point in the future, he gets Dr. Manhattan's powers. He's going to have that forward and backward memory as well, theoretically. So that might be why he knows things or not. I'm not sure. There's also some people have, have pointed out, like, there are some things that Will does at various points in the show that seem strange and perhaps supernatural. Like, mm. he manages to escape from handcuffs. He... Uh, there's a scene when he's in the kitchen with Angela where he's like pulling like eggs out of boiling water with his bare hands that I didn't catch, but people say it's in there. Mm. So it's like, was there more to their conversation? And, you know, there might be something symbolic there of, you know, this story beginning and ending with Will, you know, and Will right. becoming the the new Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Like what if, you know, what if Will does have Dr. Manhattan's powers and he wouldn't it be interesting to see at the end, you know, you have this giant racist Dr. Manhattan and then the person that fights and kills him is not Dr. Manhattan like we think we're being led to believe but rather a giant glowing blue hooded justice yeah um kind of out there but interesting yeah you know it would kind of put a really neat bow on everything yeah maybe a little on the nose but I like it um I, I don't know yeah I don't again it's like I don't know where it all goes there's the big missing the big dangling threads of like who are they what do they want what does that big thing do true vite millennium clock mm-hmm. we don't know what those characters want we don't know what the clock does right um I mean, we got a pretty good sense of dr manhattan's been kidnapped by the bad guys and they're going to use him to create a bad guy dr manhattan yeah that process is going to get interrupted or not whatever like i don't know what angela has left to do and i will mm. say i do kind of hope that she has something more to do because it would be kind of shitty to position this black woman as the center of the show, but really have her role be in the grand scheme of things to just, you know, turn her husband's powers back on so that he can save the day. You know what I mean? That would suck. I don't think they'll go that route because they've constantly said that like, she is the center of the show and it's her story. Right. Um, that doesn't mean they won't avoid a gaffe like that, but uh, I'm hoping that since they've been framing it that way from the beginning, that they will have an important role for her right. and the conclusion will be centered around her, at least in some way. Right. Because she hasn't really done anything since she took the pills. Like, in terms of, That's... like, actual, like, actions that advance the plot. Well, I guess waking up John, but... Yeah. Um, but that was predetermined. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's it's a good point. Um, I'm wondering if, just very briefly, I'm thinking that I bet that, once again, the show is trying to lead us. When Vite wrote his message, Save Me, we talked about this last time or two times ago, mm-hmm. 
you know, save me D dash, whatever it says. I think it was supposed to be, oh, it's supposed to be Dr. Manhattan, but I really think it's actually whatever, maybe Vite's first name is or something like that. Or sorry, not Vite, True, Lady True's first name. Um, yeah. Because I, that would explain how he got back because Dr. Manhattan would not have been able to save him because he did not exist at the time. Right, right. Vite wouldn't, we'd, he'd have no reason to th- to 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 think at that stage that Dr. Manhattan, right, he would just assume, oh, he's still in his human form. Yeah. Or if he didn't even know and he still put it out there, it wouldn't amount to anything. Unless he put the message out and Vite still saw it and came rescued him anyway. So that's a possibility as well. Because Vite didn't know exactly what the plan, maybe we all, like you said, but we don't know the exact details of what Vite knew about John's plan. Well, but we knew, I mean, like, but Vite could probably piece it together that he's depowering John, right? And this yeah. is going to last, you know, presumably forever. So if I've got to put my message out there... um, I'm not going to do it to a guy who might not be. Um, and also, I think he knows that. Well, I don't know. Well, no, because at that stage in the timeline, he knows that True knows that Manhattan is on Europa. So he knows that True has eyes on Europa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why when the satellite passes by in that scene, when he when he's outside the bubble, he does seem to be like, ah, good. There's the satellite. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely communicating with True. He he has to be. He knows that's who's looking at him. Right. Like, it's not Dan. It's not. And again, he he would say, save me, John. Yeah. So, yeah, we're right. gonna, that, that D is going to reveal something about her name. Is it maybe it's daughter or something? Should be kind of clunky, but. Yeah. Or there's a lot of Vietnamese names that start with D. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're approaching the end. This is it. This is it. One more episode. I was thinking today while I was reading some of the PDPedia stuff, like, I really like they did that because it's a very Watchmen thing to do because the book is so full of, like, a newspaper clipping from this, uh, yep, you know, a section from this book or this comment. I just think it was, like, they can't do that easily. That wouldn't feel clunky in a in the show. So they made it a part of this, you know, this website. And it's, it's not necessary. No. Much like really a bunch of the Apocrypha in the Watchmen book isn't necessary for the plot of the show or of the, of the rest of the book, mm-hmm. but it adds this depth and this interesting and, and, and some explanations and some hints at some things. And I just really like how I think regardless of this, if the show ends well mechanically or not, I think it can be praised for capturing a lot of the feeling and structure and all these things that the original comic put forth. Yeah. It's Watchmen as hell. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope it sticks to landing. I think it's like I was saying yesterday, I feel like it's got just enough story left to get me through one extended length episode this week. Yeah. Like I really feel like they have enough space to or or, or they, they have just enough loose ends that they're going to get us where we want to be. Um, I just hope it's in a place that is that where that the complexity and the promise of the themes of this show pay off as opposed to just being like, yep, yep, there it is. That's there's your mystery. It was it was Ozymandias in the conservatory with the lead pipe, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think they're going to I agree. I think they'll I think they'll tie it all together. It's just whether that's actually like a compelling. Yeah. And strong ending is, is like the question. That's yeah, up. exactly. Does it do any more than just solve the mystery? Sure. So but I guess we will find out in a week. I'm so excited. Less than a week. And then we're going to find something else to talk Shit, about. It's probably going to be The Witcher. Yeah, it is. I don't know. I don't know. It looks good. You've been playing the game. 
I am. I'm back in it. I'm back in Witcher 3. I've been playing the game, so we're kind of in the mindset. I know. Uh, I just started the expansions. Good luck. And I immediately went to a new area. Not new area, like they added a bunch of question marks to the map. So I, on my way to the next quest, I stopped at one to, you know, investigate, as you do. Mm-hmm. And was immediately trounced by the, like, they added, like, wild boars <laughs> that were, like, pretty high level. And they just, like, annihilated me. And, I, like, nothing has challenged me in this game for, like, third, like, ten levels. So I was just like, oh, okay, I guess this got harder again. Just a cool. boar. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, okay, damn. <laughs> well, they have this charge attack that, like, when it hits I, you, does, like, half your health bar of damage. Do. And it's like, fuck. I'm sure they do. So, you Meanwhile, you're just, like, one-shotting dragons. But yeah, just a, a, pretty much. A, a toothy pig <laughs> takes you down. <laughs> That's video games yeah. for you, though. Anyway, uh, it probably it probably be Witcher. Oh, and we'll have some holiday things to talk about. We got to do a year end list, right? Uh, Our annual tradition. I guess so. Yeah, uh, it's that time. Um, Top ten Evangelion for- episodes of the year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, not gonna do that. I know. I know. I know. I, mean, I know you want to. I I I don't know if I do. I've managed to I actually haven't thought about Evangelion in quite a while. Yeah, Watchmen has done a pretty good job of occupying my headspace. That's true. It's kind of like what they they say what um they say what you do when like a song gets stuck in your head is that you have to listen to a, a very another very complex song to push it out. Yeah. Cuz it occupies the space a, and kind of takes it up, so. Little old lady who's followed the fly scenario. What? The little old lady who's followed a fly, perhaps she'll die. And then oh. she swallows a spider to catch the fly, perhaps she'll yes. die. Yes. And I I knew what you were saying, but I forgot the like the rhyme. Yeah. So, you know, in order to get Call Me Maybe out of your head, you have to listen to Sweet Child of Mine and it gets Sweet Child of Mine, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you end up at like, you know, an Opeth song or. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, all right. (laughs) Talk to you in a week. See you in a week.